first time, good luck. Is this, I've never done this before. I want to teach a bit of history. Does anybody here like history? A few of you, that's good. The rest you can tune out. No, you can't. You've got to listen. <laughs> um, but I actually love history. The thing about history, they say history repeats itself, but it has to because no one listens the first time. And if you look at history, it just repeats itself again and again and again. The atrocities that went on in World War II were just repeated in the Balkans some, you know, 30, 40 years. It's, it, it's, it's the nature of history to repeat itself because we as people don't learn anything. So I'm praying that this morning we will learn something a little bit from history. I believe that we as a nation are standing on the brink right now. We've been talking about this, but as we've met together as as combined churches this week, it's become so apparent. The dark is becoming darker and the light is becoming lighter. And we stand at a moment in history. If you look back through history, (coughs) there are certain moments that stand out, key moments, when everything changed, everything. You know, do do you remember 9-11? Okay, most of us do, when the towers came down in New York. Well, in my family, it was pretty pivotal because in the morning, I watched the towers come down. And all the airlines in, into the U.S. were shut down. But that afternoon, I caught a flight to Europe. And my kids were saying, Dad, don't go. You're going to die. And I'm saying, no, I'm not going to die. Because, but it was a pivotal moment in history. In the old days, you used to be able to walk up to the cockpit and say, hey, can my little boy sit in the cockpit? With Doesn't happen anymore, does it? A pivotal moment in history where everything changed. Okay? And so there are pivotal moments in history where things actually change, for good or for evil, but they change. And I want to look at some of those this morning. You know, if you look back at the things going on in our country, our state, our city right now, you would have to say that we are on the brink of social disaster. You could argue that we are on the brink of complete moral collapse in our society. And I'm going to prophesy, I'm not concentrating on that, I'm going to prophesy that we are on the brink of the greatest revival in our history right now. That's what we need to concentrate on. Not all of the stuff out there, <clears throat> but we've got to keep it in context. Ezekiel 22.30, Sky read it so well. I sought for a man to stand among them who will build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land, that I should not destroy it. But I found none. That's what the Lord said. Let's pray today he finds some. Do you know, Proverbs 14.34 is a very incredible verse for us right now. It says, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. And I don't know about you, but I'm proud to be Australian, but I'm ashamed of what our nation stands for right now because sin is a disgrace to any people. So I want to talk about two nations, two roads, a tale of two cities. Who remembers the Charles Dickens work, A Tale of Two Cities? Did anybody read that in school? Now that was written at a particular time where two groups of people chose different paths. A Tale of Two Cities was was a novel published by Charles Dickens in 1859. It compares two great cities, London and Paris, and the backdrop of of it is the French Revolution. So I'm going to do that this morning. I'm going to compare England, London, with Paris and France and see what happened back then, what it was like, what happened based on the decisions their people made. Okay? So yes, it is a history lesson. Those of you who don't like history, learn to love it because it's pretty cool. So I want to I contrast France and England back in the 1700s and consider what it means for us in Australia today. So what was going on back in the 1700s in, in France and England? Well, th- first of all, there was political injustice. 
<coughs> both France and England had huge empires in the early 1700s. Remember, Captain Cook came to Australia, discovered Australia and all that sort of stuff, discovered the East Coast, right? All around the world, these, these nations had tremendous empires. And, and England had a constitutional monarchy where the king had limited powers and the country was governed by the British Parliament. But even so, rich people prospered while commoners lived in filth and squalor, all brought on by the Industrial Revolution. The Industrial Revolution was just kicking off in the 1700s and what happened was people moved out of, out of farms and stuff into factories and their quality of living went down. But the amount of wealth for the wealthy people went sky high. Okay, that's what happened in England. In France, France actually boasted the largest population in Europe at the time and had an absolute monarchy under Louis, uh, Louis XVI and it had trouble feeding its masses. The king and his wife, a lady by the name of Marie Antoinette, if you've heard of her, lived in the grand mansions of Versailles and they taxed the subjects into poverty. They spent money lavishly, they taxed everybody else. Does that sound like Australia? Just saying. Multitudes lived in the direst poverty while the royal and high church of, royalty and high church officials, cardinals, archbishops and bishops and abbots lived in decadent riches. So look at our nation today. Some, some people have everything they want, but many people with interest rates rising uh, find the, the average family is under incredible rent and mortgage pressure like never before. And people are being controlled and manipulated by a few members in the government while our society faces the greatest homelessness crisis in our history right now. And while I'm on about it, and if you're listening, uh, Premier, I hope you enjoy this, but at a time when homelessness is rife, there is so much red tape towards setting up homeless things. They're trying to strip it back to try and house the homeless. But at that same moment, we've gone and spent millions of dollars increasing the seating capacity at the Gabba so we can watch more football matches. Come on. It's just like it was back then. Proverbs 17:15 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both like an abomination to the Lord. And I think there's some things we need to get right as a people. So that's the first thing. The second thing was <laughs> that intellectualism was practically deified, uh, made into a god. Science and philosophy was celebrated. In the 18th century, England and France, science and intellectualism were practically deified. In this time of enlightenment, it's called the enlightenment, science, philosophy and economics was like a religion. And there were great men making great strides in this area. People like Isaac Newton and Adam Smith in England. Now in France, atheistic philosophy was promoted by men like Voltaire and Rousseau. They placed reason, liberty and equality ahead of moral values and common sense. That was their philosophy. Does that sound familiar? Today we live in a nation where we witness the elevation of intellect over morality. You know, how many times have you heard, trust the science, trust the science, trust the climate change, trust the science, for your future, trust the science, artificial intelligence, trust the science, for gender, don't trust the science, trust what you feel like at the time. This is weird, right? And the cries of equality for certain minorities in our society who, although making up 1% of the population, control 100% of the minds of the media and government. 
It doesn't make sense. Our society is as prime for disaster as both England and France were back then. But God says in Ecclesiastes 5 verse 8, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by another higher, and there are yet higher ones over him. And I'm declaring that over our state and our nation, over our premier and our prime minister, there is a higher authority. And his name is Jesus. (laughs) That's right. Quote from the revolution down there, the French Revolution. Let them eat cake. Kenny loves cake. The third thing that was going on in France and England at the time was moral decline. England at the beginning of the 18th century was a, was a moral quagmire and a spiritual cesspool. Thomas Carlyle described, now listen to this, the country's condition as stomach well alive, soul extinct. Do you think that would apply to us today? Stomach well alive, soul extinct. France was exactly the same, with the masses living in putrid conditions rife with moral decadence. Drunkenness was rampant. Gin drinking was the big thing back then, and it was rampant everywhere, gambling everywhere. Blatant homosexuality and prostitution were commonplace. In fact, gambling was so extensive that one historian described England as one vast casino. Things were so bad that newborns Well, when they were born, they were left exposed on the streets to die. Does that sound familiar? The bill going through Parliament right now. It was estimated that 97% of the infants born to working women died as children. 97%. Disease was rampant. There were no orphanages back in those days. Theatres were lured and pornographic and X-rated. Blood sports like cockfighting and bare-knuckle boxing were popular. And they even sold tickets to public executions as if they were going to the theatre. Hey, what are we going to do this afternoon? I don't know. Somebody's being executed. Let's go to that. Okay, that's cool. Let's have a party. This is the the mentality at the time, right throughout both of those societies. The slave trader brought material gain to many while further degrading their souls. Bishop Berkeley wrote that morality and religion in Britain had collapsed, quote, to a degree that was never known in any Christian country. That's how bad England was at the time. And France, exactly the same. Both France and England were seeing moral decline in the early to mid-1700s with the breakdown and destruction of the family and pornographic entertainments. Now, pause for a minute and think just about the last few years of our history. What are we... Can we point the finger here? Not a chance. Have a look at our, our society. From the, the, the plebiscite and the legalization of, gay, uh, legalization of gay marriage a few years ago, that's all we want, they said. We just want gay people to be able to get married. Well, it wasn't. Because what followed hot on the heels of that? A steady downhill flow of morality. And you know all the issues we face from transgenderism being pushed on children, abortion up to birth, euthanasia, and the erosion of civil liberties through vaccinations and lockdowns. And the Bible says, Proverbs 31.9, open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. We have poor and needy all around us and we have to defend their rights because they can't do it. Micah 6.8 says, he has told, told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? Micah 6.8, to, to act just, uh, sorry, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And we've let him down on all three of those. 
The fourth thing about the 1700s was spiritual decline. Atheism and an antichrist spirit was rising in the 1700s and the traditional church was heavily in decline. France was entirely, almost entirely Roman Catholic and scandals like priests committing immorality, misappropriation of funds and abuse of the poor were considered normal back in those days. In England, deism was rampant and a bland philosophical morality was standard fare for churches. Sir William Blackstone visited the church of every major clergyman in London and he reported that in most sermons he heard, it would have been impossible to tell just from listening whether the preacher was a follower of Confucius, Muhammad or Christ. That was the level that the, the church had fallen to. Sermons were long and, and long intellectual discourses that bored their listeners to tears and were completely devoid of Holy Spirit power. Now, please don't accuse me of that. <laughs> if you're bored, I promise to get better. But look at some of our churches in our nation today. Churches who openly support clearly immoral and unbiblical ideas and even celebrate them. I've always been fascinated with Romans 1 where it talks about God taking his hands off humanity and a slide into moral decay. But the, the, the verse 32, right at the end of Romans 1, it says this, Though they know God's righteous decree that those, deserve practice to, who, those who practice such things deserve to die, not only do they do them, but they give approval for those who practice them. And so we've got a church in this country that not only does it, but they give approval for everybody else to do it. And that needs to change. So both 18th century England and France, uh, both of the countries were spiritually, morally, intellectually and socially a mess. But have a look at Australia. Could we not be charged with the same thing? I ask you. Have a look at our country. So what did each country do? Well, first of all, France's solution was humanism. That is exactly what they're talking about out in the media. Forget God, let's, we can all do it together. It's humanism. Human beings are great. We can do it. We can make it. We can make ourselves better. The French Revolution was not a crusade for religious freedom. It was an effort to replace religion with reason and rationalism. And it blew up in their face. On June the 8th, 1794, a disciple of Rousseau named Robespierre and the French National Convention formally inaugurated a new religion in the middle of the French Revolution. And this is what they said. It was a form of deism. They said basically that God, having created the universe, more or less disappeared and we're all on our own. And so we can do it because we are people and we are human beings and we are basically good and we can make it on our own. So this convention ordered that all French people should recognize a supreme being but reject the superstition of Christianity. New holidays were commissioned celebrating the great events of the revolution. Saints were replaced with political heroes. Does that not smack of communism? Churches were designated temples of reason. And the Father, Son and Holy Ghost were replaced by a new trinity, liberty, equality and fraternity. That's still part of the French makeup today. France rejected Christ. They followed man-made reasoning. And what happened was they plunged into the bloodbath, which was the French Revolution. Liberty, equality, and fraternity deteriorated into fear, bloodshed, and murder. In a few weeks, after they declared the French Revolution happening, a few, within a couple of weeks, more than 1,400 people had lost their heads at the, at the um, 
guillotine, guillotine. And France became a godless, chaotic and bloody mess. They chose humanistic solutions to their social problems and they reaped the harvest. Even today, they reaped the harvest in France of what went on so long ago. They ignored Paul's warning, Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world and not according to Christ. They just embraced those things. They embraced this... this uh, atheistic tradition that man can do it on their own Romans 8 6 for to set the mind on the flesh is death but to set the mind of, on the spirit is life and peace I believe this is a dire warning to us in Australia today that we could go the way of the French in the late 1700s we could do that if we reject Christ and if we embrace pure humanism pure pure atheism if we think we can make it on our own History repeats itself because no one listens. But what happened in England? England chose another path. In England, the society which, was pretty, which pretty near mirrored France at the time took a different path. Godly people began to pray. They began to pray for revival and there arose a man called George Whitfield, an ordained Anglican clergyman. And in order to reach many non-churchgoers with the gospel, he started to speak in open fields and large crowds, crowds up to ten and 20,000 without a microphone began gathering to hear his message of salvation. Now his message impacted a guy by the name of John Wesley. Ever heard of him? And he was an Anglican missionary who'd gone to America to convert the Indians and, and he, he went over there and he realized he himself wasn't even converted. He wrote this, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who will convert me? And on the ship, Wesley met a bunch of guys called the Moravians. They come out of Germany and they were immigrants and they were on fire for Jesus Christ. And he was so impressed by their spiritual strength and joy that it, when he got back to England on May the 24th, 1738, during a meeting at Aldersgate, Wesley gave his life to Christ. And he said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins. Now these two men, Whitfield and Wesley, began to turn the nation of England upside down for Jesus. They spoke Jesus. The established church hated it. Is there any surprise there? In fact, the established church threw them out. You're no longer part of our group. That's okay, they said. Wesley said, I'll form my own group. No problem. And, and they, they threw them out. So they had to preach in the fields because no church would have them. And because people, people got so irate about this message that they were preaching the gospel, they suffered persecution. But Wesley always used to try and preach in front of the stained glass windows of the church so no one would throw rocks at him for fear of breaking the window. And as Wesley preached, multitudes responded. He noted in his journal, listen to this, the word of God ran as fire among the stubble. It ignited, if you will. It was glorified more and more. Multitudes crying out, what must I do to be saved? And afterwards witnessing, by grace we are saved through faith. The Wesleyan revival walked in the prophecy that Isaiah had over 2,000 years before, listen to this. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high place and holy place, and also with him who is contrite and lowly of spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, 
to revive the heart of the contrite. What France saw was a bloodbath, secularism. They called for equality and fraternity and all they got was a bigger mess than they started with. But what England saw was a massive turning to Jesus because they went into revival. And we share the inheritance of that today. Thank God. You know, we can say what we like about the English, but thank God they, they found Australia before the French did. Or at least claimed Australia before the French did. Otherwise, we'd be talking about equality and fraternity and stuff. I thank God for the spiritual heritage that was placed in us at the first fleet. So this revival that Wesley and Whitfield saw had three specific characteristics. I want to share these with you because I believe this is what it's going to take to see revival in our nation. We talk about it. You can talk about it all you like. We want to see it. And we can't fake it. You cannot fake a revival, right? You'll just wear everybody out. You can't fake it. But what I'm planning to do, and I'm sure you're with me, is I just want to position myself right under the spout for when God pours it out. Do I hear an amen? Right? So we just need to position ourselves and wait for Him and His Spirit to fill us. So let's look at the revival back then. There were three major characteristics. First, there was a recovery of personal piety and holiness. Britain had sunk into the same mire France had, despite rejecting Catholicism years before. The Protestantism, religious Protestantism, was unable to renew the moral fabric of their society any more than Catholicism. Religion doesn't work. Doesn't work. It was based on relationship, not religion. If you think that by giving in the offering or turning up at church, you're going to get saved, think again. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. It doesn't work that way. You can't just hang out and say, well, I've got it. You've got to have a personal revelation of God. You've got to have a personal relationship with Jesus. It's you and Him. For we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's what Paul said. All of us. You don't stand there with your, your, your wife or your husband. You don't stand there with your kids or your parents. You stand alone and you will give an account, the Bible says. And I don't know about you, but I'd like to stand there not alone. I'd like to stand with Jesus. And it's about relationship. Wesley and Whitfield preached holiness to a sinful nation. And just like today, they copped a lot of flack for it. And I tell you, folks, there is persecution coming. And if you're going to stand up for what's right, you'd better be strong because they are going to attack you. They, are, they don't show you any mercy. Just a few years ago, they nearly threw the Catholic Archbishop of Hobart in jail because he produced a document when the plebiscite was on that said, here's what the Bible says about marriage. That was his only crime. Bible verses on a piece of paper and this gay transgender lobbyist guy took him to the anti-discrimination and they were going to throw him in jail before the government stepped in and said, you can't throw a, a Catholic Archbishop in jail for simply writing what the Bible says. You just can't do that. But they nearly did it. It's coming, folks. And so if we don't, we have to decide now which side we're on. What are we going to stand for? Stand for something lest you fall for anything. The rest of our nation falls for everything. Secondly, about this revival, was rejection of the superficiality of religion in favor of solid biblical teaching. You know, Wesley started a group called the Methodists. Why were they called the Methodists? Because they had methods, right? And he didn't just say, 
float on in and be a Christian and have a good experience and float on out again. He didn't just say, take a bit of you know, wine and bread and, and you'll be right, your soul will be saved. He said, no, we're going to get serious about this. We're going to reject all of that religious stuff and we are going to concentrate on a personal, dynamic relationship with the Lord. And so he got his people doing things which were shock, horror, disciplines. I know we don't like the word discipline these days, but we need to learn it. If you want to do anything well, you have to be disciplined. Am I right? Footballers don't just stumble onto the state of origin field and say, oh, here I am. They might have some gifting, but I tell you what, those guys are disciplined. They work hard and we should too. So he got his people engaged in in journal keeping, Bible reading, self-examination and keeping short accounts with God. The third uh, characteristic of their their uh, of that revival was there a re- was a recovery and an emphasis on the doctrines that have first powered the Reformation: salvation by faith and a transformed life. And so, instead of preaching all of this religious stuff, he preached salvation by faith. You can't earn it. You can't be religious enough to get it. What you can do is ask God, and by grace, He will give it to you. It's not from your, not by works, lest no man should boast. And that's what he preached. The revival was also characterized by large numbers of people having personal encounters with God, not religious experiences. Crowds of miners, for example, listened to Whitfield and, Whit- and Wesley preach. And Wesley's brother Charles, Charles Wesley, you might be familiar with him, he was a songwriter. And he wrote a hymn after looking over these crowds of miners coming to Jesus. And he wrote a hymn in 1739 which said, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. Wow. He saw thousands of tongues. He heard them sing and he wrote about it. Isn't that cool? I told you history's fun. You didn't believe me, but I told you. We can also see that the revival was a reaction against intellectualism, moralism and rationalism and a protest against the cold formality of contemporary religion. Back in those days, sermons up until then were very long, boring and often dry articulations of obscure points of theology. There was very little for the soul in their their preaching. So perhaps it's not surprising that in the age of enlightenment uh, that the the culture focused on human reasoning because bare religion could offer them nothing. I mean, sermons on, on, on intellectual things and, 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 and theological things that didn't matter to anybody. We need to preach Jesus. Not, not all this hype. We need to preach Jesus because that's what's going to make a difference. So France embraced humanism and mass executions while Britain turned en masse to God and saw revival. Such were the choices of their leaders. And I believe that today, this is our moment in history. I believe we face the same choice today in our society. Do I hear an amen? So let me ask you, in the 1700s, as in right now, back then church leaders didn't care enough, they didn't share enough, and they didn't dare enough. They were comfortable in their exclusive churches, their living lives of ease. They were employed by the church. They simply didn't care enough about the cesspool that was society. They didn't care. They were happy. You know, the whole idea, people say to me, all I want to do is I want to get to heaven. Well, that's, that might be what you want, but that's not God. Because my plan is this, I want to get to heaven. I want to take as many people as I can with me. 
because there are people dying out there. You drive around these streets, they look nice. Nice homes, manicured lawns, but inside people are dying. They're going to hell. And we need to be the ones who, who share the good news with them. So they didn't care enough, but they didn't share enough. Back then, the leaders kept things to themselves that they wanted. They didn't share the gospel. In a world heading to hell in a handbasket, they didn't care enough to share the gospel with them. And they didn't dare enough either. They were too frightened to speak out against the forces of evil. And that looks exactly like our society today, does it not? We have so much. We care so little. We don't want to share our faith and we are terrified of saying anything. You know why people don't speak out? Because they're frightened of being attacked. Don't believe me? Get onto Facebook and make a comment that goes against the sort of the, the, the run of things at the moment and wait five minutes, five minutes, and you will get the most horrid vitriol you have ever seen coming back at you. They'll accuse you of all sorts of things. I remember just, uh, just when the plebiscite was on, I was uh, at a family do. I was washing up with my atheistic brother-in-law and um, he turned to me and he said, you know, they did a survey. He's, he's, at, he's at, inter, uh, at university. He's a university lecturer. He said, you know, they did a survey and those people who aren't in favour of gay marriage, their average intelligence was much lower than those who are. And being a wit, I replied, really, was that on a university campus? <laughs> but, but it's so true. They will attack you left, right and centre if you stand for something. But you must stand for something lest you fall for anything. Boy, does it sum up our churches today. Elijah, Elijah called out the people. I love Elijah because he's, he's, he's very human. He has high highs, he has low lows. But I love the way he stood up for his God on a place called Mount Carmel. And he got people out there. And before he called down fire and all that sort of stuff, he addressed the people. In 1 Kings 18, 21, he says, says this, And Elijah came near to all the people. So they're all there watching. And he says this, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? That word limping in the Hebrew means dancing. Dancing, like Kenny's jig. How long will you limp between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And the people did not answer a word. Why? Because they knew they were guilty. They didn't know what to say. But he said it for them. I believe we are at a moment in our history when we must make a stand for what is right and true. If we don't, no one else will. If we go quiet, this stuff will just sail through. Why do you think the parliament passes these sorts of laws at 2 o'clock in the morning? Because they don't want people to actually know until it's all, oh, it's too late now, it's a law. They do it all the time. Edmund Burton, the great British statesman, once said, all that is required for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. And we are in a society where good men and women are doing nothing while our nation falls apart. Do I hear an amen to that? So, now I'm finishing up a series on revival and this is a great way to finish. I want to encourage you to come to our meeting tonight. All of us together praying for revival in our, in our city. Isn't that a great thing? It's been phenomenal to experience this over the last week. But I started with that passage from Ezekiel where God is saying, who will stand in the gap? 
And as your pastor, I pledge to be the man that stands in the gap. And I want to invite you to stand with me. This is my commitment to pray and to do all I can to share the gospel and stand firm upon the word of God without compromise, regardless of the cost. We must stand. So I believe that we are at a critical, pivotal moment in Australian history. Do we follow the voice of humanism, the voice of compromise, the voice of the government and the media? Or do we follow God's voice? God said, I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me in the land, but I sh- that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Our nation is desperately in need of men and women to stand in the gap. God is searching for that person. 2 Chronicles 16, the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth. And right now in this room, his eyes are ranging throughout the earth. And he's saying, who will stand for me? Standing in the gap is not easy because the spirit behind the humanists and the secularists and all of that stuff going on out there, let's get this right. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers and authorities. What is behind what's going on in our society is Satan. And that's who you're fighting. And trust me, he blinds the minds, as 2 Corinthians 4 says. He blinds the minds of unbelievers. And so they're blinded out there. But I tell you what, he will throw everything at you if you make a stand. Everything. So get ready. But I believe this is our God-given moment, our God-appointed moment in history to stand for what is right and to fight the spiritual forces of darkness on our knees. Psalm 68, verse 1 to 3. Listen to this. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad, and they shall exalt before the Lord. They shall be jubilant with joy. That's what's on the agenda coming up, folks. But we have to stand for what is right and true. I meet Christians all the time saying, well, no, you know, we'll just, yeah. No, we have to make a stand. What's our, what's our stand? What's our values? The Word of God? That's what it is. Meet people all the time say, oh, I don't believe in that stuff. That does not make it true. What you believe does I, I could, Oh, God's saying, well, I'm going to change my whole word now. This guy doesn't believe. It's not going to happen. God's Word is His Word. His standard is His standard. His holiness is His holiness. No matter what you believe... But if you don't want to go down France's path, if you want to go England's path and see real revival, then you must stand with me in the gap and commit to reaching our nation for Christ. Why don't you bow your heads? We're going to seek the Lord together. Some of you may not be sure where you stand in all this. Maybe you come along to church and go, I'm not really sure what's going on here. But I cannot let you leave without telling you that God loves you, that you are a sinner, and God will forgive your sin if you come to him right now. So I'm going to lead you in a prayer, and we're going to ask the Lord to come into your life as your Lord and your Savior. We believe that Jesus is the way. We believe that Jesus is the answer to our nation's problems, but he's also the answer to your problems in your life. So if you've never asked Jesus into your life, or maybe you're not sure, now's the time to get sure. We don't need people who are dancing and limping between two different opinions. Just make sure that you have committed your life to Christ 
and that he's living within you. Pray these words with me. If you're not sure, pray with me because we want to make sure. I don't want anyone leaving today without the firm knowledge that they belong to Jesus. So if you're not sure or if you've never asked Jesus into your life or if you've been walking far from him, this is for you. Pray these words with me. Lord Jesus, I know that I've sinned. Please forgive me of my sin. I turn away from my sin to you. And I ask you into my life as my Lord and Savior. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Thank you for giving me life forevermore. And I promise to obey you from this moment forth. If you prayed that prayer for the first time or the first time in a long time, or maybe you weren't sure and you were just making sure, just quickly shoot your hand up and put it down now wherever you are. I want to make sure all of us are in the same boat here. If that's you, just quickly put your hand up and put it down. We're not going to bring you to the front or anything, but I know the Lord's spoken to a few people here. And for the rest of us, let's stand together.